Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. South America's third poorest country won't be for long. Guyana recently struck oil, and a staggering economic boom awaits. Today's decision on last week's disputed election will determine how that flood of oil wealth will be managed or mismanaged. And look around many cities and you'll find all manner of gates, rails, and barriers designed to foil attacks using vehicles. This anti-terror architecture is seen as a necessary evil in uncertain times. But does all of it have to be ugly? First up, though. Today, the disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein will be sentenced. Last month, he was convicted of rape and criminal sexual assault and faces up to 29 years in prison. Prosecutors have urged the judge to consider what they called a lifetime of abuse towards others, even though for most of those alleged abuses, Mr. Weinstein has never been charged. His lawyers have petitioned for the minimum sentence of five years, saying that any longer could constitute a de facto life sentence. After Mr. Weinstein's conviction, the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr., said that change had come to America. This is a big day. This is a new day. And I hope women will, uh, I hope women will understand the significance of the jury verdict uh, today. His optimism was echoed by some of Mr. Weinstein's accusers and their lawyers. It is a historic shift that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Change has come today. I have a message for Harvey, for all abusers, rape myth perpetuators, victim blamers, and those who have retaliated against us. This one's for you. Your time is up. The allegations against him formed the start of the Me Too movement, a very public example of what remains a troublingly hidden kind of crime. It would be easy to see his conviction and imprisonment as a high point for Me Too. Next, he'll face charges in Los Angeles for crimes he continues to deny. Just how much any of these cases will change things is far from clear. Personally, I was surprised. Sasha Nauta is The Economist's public policy editor. Mr. Weinstein's case certainly wasn't a slam dunk. Some people may have had that impression, but it was by no means a straightforward case. These sorts of trials are really, really complex. And in addition, Mr. Weinstein faced accusers whose stories were not straightforward. In a way, they were very representative of a lot of these cases in the sense that they don't fit our cultural idea of rape, you know, being something that happens with a lot of force and a ski mask by a stranger. Instead, these women told stories of complex relationships, including ongoing contact with Mr. Weinstein after the assault. And typically, juries have really struggled with those kind of cases. In fact, most of those cases don't make it anywhere near 
a jury. And to that extent, actually, it's a very atypical case because, of course, Mr. Weinstein's case, as well as the accusations, have all played out very, very publicly. There have been multiple accusers. It's all been spelled out in the media. One thing that made it quite an unusual case is that the judge allowed extra witnesses, women who were not part of the charges against Mr. Weinstein, to nevertheless testify over previous so-called bad acts that they had experienced at his hands, allegedly. But it certainly was quite controversial and may well be part of the grounds of a possible appeal by Mr. Weinstein's team. And what would that appeal look like? It's hard to know. I mean, concerns have been raised about whether Mr. Weinstein could have a fair trial, you know, given all the media attention and publicity, particularly in New York City. I mean, before the trial, his team tried very hard to get the trial moved to somewhere where they thought he might face a more forgiving jury that was thrown out. This is a long process. Could take easily take up to a year. And I guess one of the questions now that people are asking is, well, is he going to get out and bail? And can he continue to walk around with an ankle monitor whilst that process is ongoing, which is, of course, what has been going on in the run up to his trial? So you say that the the result is uh, a bit surprising, and and certainly prosecutors and plenty of commentators have held it up as a sort of watershed moment, as a sort of apotheosis of the of of the the, the Me Too movement that essentially was launched by by these cases. What's your take on that? I think the word watershed was used an awful lot immediately after the verdict, and I understand it. I mean, this was a high stakes trial which the Manhattan DA couldn't afford to lose. So they really threw themselves at this. On the other hand, I think as as with so many celebrity trials, we have to be careful with drawing broader conclusions here. I hope it will be a watershed moment. There's an awful lot wrong with how sexual violence is is investigated and prosecuted. But I have my doubts. I think the the, the real tests will come when a single woman, not a group of women, come forward to accuse somebody of rape without all the media attention, right? Without all the vilification, if you will, of the accuser. There's been an awful lot of emphasis on how powerful Mr. Weinstein is. But, you know, his accusers have been quite powerful as well. Essentially, they have had public opinion rooting for them. And I think the real test of whether the Weinstein verdict will have a broader effect on how serious criminal justice systems and indeed juries take these kind of complex claims will only come when we see an everyday victim come forward with with a typical uh, claim of sexual assault. So what you're essentially saying there is that celebrity justice is fundamentally different. I mean, why do you suppose that is? I think celebrity justice in general is just, it's not necessarily better or worse. It is just different from normal justice. Putting all the big bright lights and attention onto someone being accused, in this case, Mr. Weinstein, that is an atypical way of of doing justice. Remember the O.J. Simpson trial, which was essentially watched like a soap opera, you know, essentially it didn't have that much impact with how other murders were investigated and tried in Los Angeles. And I think the same will be the case with the wider significance of the Weinstein conviction 
today. That said, there is, of course, an important symbolic function to locking somebody like Mr. Weinstein up and holding his feet to the fire. So I certainly wouldn't diminish the symbolic importance of seeing someone powerful like him brought into a court, convicted and locked up. It's just that we've got to be careful with suggesting that all the other hurdles that stand in the way of getting justice for everyday victims have now magically disappeared. I mean, the one distinction here between Mr. Weinstein's case and the O.J. Simpson case is that, that Mr. Simpson was was acquitted, whereas Mr. Weinstein has been convicted. Don't you think that that at least has a sort of knock-on effect, sort of casts a shadow over over future cases, gives future jurors a sense that uh, that there is an example being set there? Yeah, maybe. I mean, future jurors were, you know, reminded with this case that rape doesn't look the way they think it looks. So it's been very helpful to have this very public lesson, if you will, in rape myths, that rape is a complex crime. That said, we we poll people every year on their attitudes to sexual harassment. We've been doing that since sort of the Me Too movement took off. And in that, we don't really see much of a change in public attitudes to sexual harassment. And indeed, in America, where you would have hoped that reporting rates of sexual violence had increased. You know, it's one of the most underreported violent crimes after Me Too. After an initial bump, uh, reporting rates are back down to what they were before Me Too. So let's see what happens next year. You know, it always takes a while to get the kind of data, but I'd be careful with drawing too many conclusions at this point. Sasha, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Guyana, South America's only English-speaking country and one of its poorest, is about to be transformed by oil. Incomes for its 780,000 residents could more than triple over the next four years. But exactly how that oil wealth rains down will very much depend on who's in charge, which, following a turbulent election last week, remains in doubt. The opposition has alleged voter fraud in the country's capital, and today a high court judge is expected to determine whether to permit a recount. There have been protests by supporters of the opposition. Uh, One person has so far been killed. Brooke Unger is The Economist's America's editor. So on March 2nd, uh, Guyana held a general election for the first time since oil really began to flow from these very large offshore deposits that the country has. And this pits the president, David Granger, against Irfan Ali, who is the candidate of the opposition People's Progressive Party. But the results of the election, which appear to give David Granger, the president, a victory, are being very fiercely disputed. So now a high court judge is going to decide whether or not um, the results need to be revised. And, and you say this is the first election since oil began to flow. How, how is that issue kind of playing into to all of this? Well, Guyana is the third poorest country in South America. And, 
the, the discoveries that, that have been made by Exxon in 2015 really have the capacity to transform the fortunes of this country. You know, with the oil starting to flow, the IMF is predicting that the economy is going to grow 85% this year, which is just absolutely massive. I think it's the highest rate of growth in the world. I mean, that money is not going to suddenly flow into the pockets of, of uh, ordinary Guyanese, but it gives you an idea of, of the scale of transformation that this country could see. And so, you know, the, the stakes in this election are huge. And, and what are the political lines drawn between the two main parties in this election? The current government of, of David Granger is supported primarily by, by Afro-Guyanese, that is, um, descendants of, of slaves who, who came to Guyana. And the opposition PPP is supported primarily by Indo-Guyanese, who are descendants of indentured servants who came over after slavery was abolished. And, you know, politics in Guyana really follows these lines. That makes it very difficult to have the kind of conversation and consensus that would be required really to come together and to build up the institutions and the agreements that you would need really to make sure that this oil money is spent in the best possible way. And what have the two opposing parties said as regards how they'll they'll handle the new oil wealth? The government is trying to be very, very prudent about it, how it handles this this new oil wealth. I mean, there, there are lots of dangers when you get a, a, an enormous windfall like this. There's a danger of so-called Dutch disease, which means that you know, your currency appreciates and every industry besides oil becomes uncompetitive. There's a danger of inflation. There's a danger of corruption, obviously. And the current government is really trying to avoid all these dangers by putting the money into a sovereign wealth fund and then releasing it with certain, you know, fiscal rules and preserving a large part of that money for future generations. The opposition doesn't quibble with any of this in principle, but, you know, they say that the sovereign wealth fund is too politicized and have vowed to sort of replace that with with a, a fund of their own devising. And nobody really knows what's going to come out at the end of that. But some of the decisions about how to turn the oil resources in, into wealth have, have already been made, Right. So one of the issues that's really inflamed the election is uh, a report that came out from an NGO called Global Witness, which basically alleged that this government signed a very, very bad deal with Exxon, leaving too much money in the hands of Exxon and and, um, foregoing up to $55 billion that could have gone to, to the Guyanese people. So the opposition has capitalized on this and is accused the government of signing a very bad deal. It should be said that not everybody agrees with this analysis. And one of the reasons that the government signed the deal that it did sign is that Guyana has a a border dispute with Venezuela. This adds a whole new layer of complexity to the whole story. But put very briefly, uh, Venezuela claims two-thirds of Guyana's territory, including a very large Uh, share of the offshore oil deposits. And one of the reasons the government said that it signed uh, this deal with Exxon is because it wanted Exxon on this side in its dispute. Its calculation that was that, you know, with a, a big, enormous American company with a huge degree of political clout, they would have an easier time fending off Venezuela's claims. So there is all this this rancor around the the outcome of the election and uh, an election in in which the oil wealth plays a, a starring role. Do do you think ultimately this this oil windfall is is going to be good or or for, or bad for for the fractured politics that the country's known for decades? Well, 
I, I guess, first of all, more important than asking whether it's good or bad for politics is asking whether it's going to be good or bad for the Guyanese people. You know, one view I've heard expressed is that there's so much money that even if, you know, half of it is stolen, there's still a lot of money to go around. And I think that, you know, there is certainly a, there's certainly a good chance that some of that money will, will ultimately benefit the Guyanese people. But we're not starting from a good place. The, the, the results of the election are, are widely doubted by the international community. It's not clear whether this government will accept the ruling of a court uh, that goes against it. If the opposition comes into power, a lot of people dread what that will mean. I mean, when the opposition has been in power before, it had a reputation for corruption. So between the political rancor that divides uh, Guyanese politics, the, the murkiness of this election and the, and the weakness of Guyana's institutions, it's hard to be really optimistic about how well this oil money is going to be spent. Brooke, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. The Corpus Clock in the middle of the University of Cambridge is a modernist mechanical marvel. Unveiled in 2008 by the physicist Stephen Hawking, it's one and a half meters or about five feet across, and it's plated in 24 karat gold. Tourists stop to watch the clock's macabre grasshopper munch the minutes as they pass. These days, though, those tourists also have to dodge vans making three-point turns near a recently installed barrier designed to stop terrorists. Anti-terrorist architecture has been common in big cities for quite a long time now. Hamish Birrell is The Economist's public policy correspondent. This anti-terror architecture is now spreading across Britain to smaller towns and cities. Cambridge, Canterbury, Windsor, York have all put them in place. And last month, the government opened consultations on a new duty to protect, which would require businesses and public authorities to put measures in place to protect the public from attacks. And so these sorts of barriers could soon become a lot more common. So so that's it. It's, it's a sort of monotonically rising curve. Everywhere will be ever more protected. It seems that way at the moment. It's hard to say for sure if there will be some reaction against barriers because they're quite often unattractive. So I visited Cambridge and there you have a large barrier in the centre of town which has cut off one of Cambridge's most beautiful streets, King's Parade. And lots of locals are very unhappy there. There's a petition which is calling for the barrier's removal or at least its replacement, and that's swept past 1,000 signatures and has prompted a debate in the local council. Really, since 9-11, there's been this increase in anti-terrorism approaches everywhere, in, in airports, for example. Do you think that the sort of anti-vehicular case is any different in terms of the debate over aesthetics? I'd say with a previous generation of security measures, you were, as you say, quite often focused on stopping people from getting to places. So one of the most obvious examples, I guess, would be when you have to go through security measures before getting on a plane, and that's not particularly attractive, but it's in a part of everyday life where you're not so concerned about aesthetics. Airports aren't particularly beautiful places. Whereas the issue with car attacks is that they tend to happen in places which are part of everyday life and which people do appreciate for the way they look, and therefore that means you're imposing costs on a different sort of place. Okay, but these things don't have to be ugly. No, so, I mean, they're rarely beautiful, but they can at best be invisible. Local authorities can choose from any obstacle which meets certain international standards. And so some of them are quite inventive these days. You can buy ones which are effectively enormous plant pots, which can withstand an unladen 7.5-ton lorry traveling at 50 miles per hour. 
And I spoke to a firm which which makes fees, and they say that revenues are rising quite quickly as more places want to bring in these protections, but to do so unobtrusively. Well, a plant pot that can withstand a seven and a half ton truck at 50 miles an hour sounds pretty obtrusive, but you assert that these things can't be beautiful. Have you not seen any examples of things that aesthetically do fit in with an existing city's architecture? So one place people look is the Welsh Assembly in Cardiff. And there you have what is effectively anti-terrorist architecture, but it's designed so it's, it's barely noticeable. And most of it takes the form of steps leading up to the assembly, which are sufficient to stop an attack and yet just kind of merge into the, the broader architecture of the assembly itself. The difficulty comes when you have to kind of retrofit protections to an existing place. But their job is a lot easier when you are designing from scratch compared to when you have to adapt existing places. And surely this debate is happening also outside Britain. I think Britain, like a number of European countries, has suffered from from a few terrorist attacks involving vehicles. So we're probably slightly ahead of the curve in starting to think about some of these issues. So certainly not alone. Other countries are also considering how they can put in place protections to minimize the risk. Hamish, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.